0: Lord, uh, we, we are very thankful for this day, very thankful for everything that it represents, very thankful for the plethora of blessings that are ours in the salvation of Christ. And uh, I do pray that that we would continue to see and appreciate and even appropriate those blessings uh, into our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for everything that you have done won for us and accomplished for us and are giving to us. Um, And as we as we meet tonight and as we think about these things, even as we continue to study Hebrews, uh, we ask you that our that our eyes really would be would be more and more opened um, and our hearts more and more opened uh, again to, to see and to receive. Uh, the wonderful salvation that you've accomplished for us. So bless our time. Thank you for your goodness to us, and we pray in your name. Amen. Um, I wanted to. Um, I wanted to take just a, a couple of minutes at the beginning of the time and um, further illustrate. Um, a point that I made was making sort of at the beginning of the sermon regarding um, the involvement of all three of the persons of the Godhead in accomplishing our salvation. Um, I know we rightly focus on the cross and and think about um, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, Jesus, and his life of obedience and his death as a substitute. Um, but i actually I, I had um, in my uh, outline this morning to refer us to Ephesians chapter one, and i don 't know if you've ever no, ever noticed this um, in in um, your reading of ephesians but there's there's actually a Trinitarian structure to this first uh, part of this letter actually uh, after the greeting in verses one and two, verses three through um, 14 are one long sentence. In our various translations, it's broken up into a number of sentences, but in the original, it's one long sentence. Um, And the structure of that uh, actually illustrates the point that I was making this morning regarding, you know, as I referenced, Hebrews 13... um, and uh, the, the, the phrase, the blood of the eternal covenant, the Father and the Son covenanting together to redeem a people, and that covenant uh, was sealed uh, by the blood of Christ. That, that was the, the sealing uh, and, and therefore making efficacious or effective that covenant made between the Father and the Son. Well, if you look at Ephesians 1, um, I, I just, I love this, it's... It's a beautiful thing. Um, if you look at Ephesians 1, verses uh, 3 through 14, there's, there's a, again, a Trinitarian structure to this, and it, it just underscores this idea that the whole of the Godhead is, is involved in our salvation. Um, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? You've got chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, focused on the Father and his plan, right? Um, And, you know, we're not going to... I don't want to spend time delineating all the different aspects of of what it is that the father purpose is to do, but just suffice it to say that it stretches from one end of eternity to the other, <laughs> right chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world um, that that we should be holy and blameless before him, right? predestined us to adoption as sons um, so so Again, it stretches from one end of eternity to the other. And then in verse 7, one, three through 6, focuses on the Father. Beginning at 1, 7 and going through verse 12, there's a focus on the Son and the Son's work. Okay? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. These are are more rooms in the mansion, by the way. You just wander around in the rooms. I mean, identify these particular things and, and just meditate on them and think about them, right? I mean, Christ's, the Father's purpose, which Christ accomplishes, extends well beyond you and your forgiveness, to the reunion of everything. I mean, it extends to you know to the to the farthest reaches of the cosmos, things seen and unseen. Colossians 1. Um, reiterates that theme that Christ by his death has reconciled all things to himself whether things in heaven or things on earth. I think about my reconciliation but Christ's work has a reconciling effect that extends well beyond me as an individual though I'm glad that it extends to me as an individual. Okay, Um, Verse 11 In him we have obtained an inheritance. There's another room There's another room in the mansion. I I read um, this last week while I was away. um, I read, I finished reading uh, The Horse and His Boy and um, then read uh, Prince Caspian. And I can't remember in which of those stories. I think it's in Prince Caspian. Yeah, it's in Prince Caspian. They get back to Narnia and they end up at Care Paravel, right? But it's all a ruin now. But downstairs, down in the basement, is all of the gold and all of the jewels and their crowns and the special gifts that Aslan gave to them, right? All this incredible treasure that is theirs. That's a room. That's a room in the house, the riches of our inheritance in Christ, and Okay, so there you go. An inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a room in the house. The incredible providence of God by which he ordains, orders, works out all things according to his purpose and his will. That's a room in the house. That's a great room to be in regularly, right? To be reminded that he's working all things after the counsel of his own perfect will and plan, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Okay, so second, the second, get that, see, there's three through six, focuses on the Father and his plan, the Son and his work, but, it, but then there's this last little bit, 13 through 14, focuses on the Spirit and his work. Right And so what is the Spirit's work summarized uh, actually in verse 14, but read it, verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. Right? The what? The down payment, the deposit, the first fruits, the taste. It's not the whole enchilada. It's a taste, a foretaste, Paul says um, in First Corinthians, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's a room to wander around in too. The prospect of inheriting the full and final salvation that Christ has accomplished. So see, there's a, there's a, a Trinitarian structure to this thing, right? All three of the persons of the Godhead are involved in your salvation but beyond you and your salvation, the reuniting of all things in Christ. So here's this little this pedestrian, this little pedestrian way that anybody know the name Bill Iverson? You ever heard of Bill Iverson? Probably not. His father, Dan Iverson, was the pastor of Shenandoah Presbyterian Church down in Miami, planted a bunch of churches in, in South Florida. Bill became a minister. His son, Dan, is a missionary in Japan leading the MTW team in Tokyo, to Chiba, actually. He's been there for 30 years. His son, Jonathan, is a missionary in India. Right? Just, I mean, it's one of those families you love to hate because it seems like everybody's just sold out to Christ, you know. Well, Bill, I knew Bill 35 years ago. Bill had this great way of talking about this Trinitarian structure. Maybe you've heard this. The father thought it. The son bought it. And the spirit brought it. I love that. The father conceived it, thought it. The son purchased it, bought it, purchased the salvation that the father intended for the son to secure. And the Spirit now, his principal ministry, is the ministry of applying all of this plethora of blessings that make up our salvation to God's people. So the Father thought it, the Son bought it, and the Spirit brought it. There you go. I like that. Okay? Okay, let's pray and we can go. No, 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 no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's just I had that in my notes this morning, and, and I, there wasn't time, and so I wanted to share it with you, because it just, I think, so well it illustrates the fact that all of the persons of the Godhead are involved in securing our salvation. You want to make a comment about this or ask a question? Okay. Hebrews 9. Hebrews um, want we'll to look at uh, the first part of this chapter. And um, again, just by, just by way of sort of quick review, um, you remember that we're, we're reading this and we're studying this and we're thinking about it uh, in the way that you would sort of listen to, to a sermon. And I've mentioned the outline a number of times. Those first few verses are the text um Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. This wonderful sort of sevenfold summary of of who the Son is. Um, and then uh, you have this next section um, in which uh, Jesus is described as being superior to the angels. That's chapters one and two, and then chapter three through four thirteen, Jesus is superior to Moses and Joshua. And then the section that we're in right now, this third main section, um, Jesus more excellent than or Jesus superior uh, to Aaron and Melchizedek. Um, and, and obviously in this part of the letter, um, last week, um, the better covenant. This week, um, the better sanctuary uh, or the better, uh, the better tabernacle, the better temple. Uh, that's what's in view um, here in these, um, in these verses. So let me, um, you know, you know, sort of on again and off again, I've been, I've been just trying to give us a sense of the flow of the letter. Not always getting down into the kind of the details, but I'd like to get down into some of the details of this particular passage um, tonight. So uh, beginning at verse 1, okay, Hebrews 9. Let me just read through uh, I'll read through verse 15. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain. which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Probably not the 16th century. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, some points. First of all, verse 5. Um, above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. That really disappoints me. Right? I mean, I just, I just find that so interesting. But, it, but, I, but it's also instructive. Right? I mean, wouldn't you... Wouldn't you love to know what he was thinking? What he was—I mean, what was he kind of inclined to want to talk about? And either—I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe he didn't have, have enough pages in his little, you know, his little sheepskin or his parchment thing or whatever, and he had to make sure he got it all in, you know. And there just wasn't time to elaborate um, these things. Um, but it's but it's also instructive. I I just. You know, as I was reading this this last week, I was thinking about this. Um, th- there's something really instructive here about the nature of Scripture, and, and it's this. God gives us in Scripture not everything we'd like to know, but he does give us everything we need to know. Right? Right? I mean, the, the writer of this letter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And there are things in his mind that he could have said, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say those things. Things we'd, I'd be interested to know. I mean, I'd be interested to know what he was thinking. So, I, that's just, a, just kind of a little, quick little teaching point. The, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we'd like to know. But it does tell us everything we need to know. And I, you know, I think about the creation. I mean, I get, a, I get a Brazilian questions about the creation. Right? I mean, I, I just got a lot of questions about Genesis 1 and 2. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to know. Genesis 3 and 4 and moving on. Um, but I don't get everything that I would like to have. I do get everything I need to have. And what I get in the creation account is is a depiction, as I said this morning, I get a depiction in the creation of the infinite personal God who is really there, who is the only adequate and sufficient explanation for everything that exists. In the beginning, God. Right? I, I get an adequate description of the God who is sufficient, or I get, I get a depiction of the God who is adequate to explain everything that exists. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. I'm, um, I, I did do a lot of reading, I mean, you know, up late and up early and up in the middle of the night stuff. and um I took this little book with me. Called, it's called What's Your Worldview? I don't know if you've seen this. Um, this is a fabulous little book not only in its content but the way that it's laid out if, if you're in conversation with people who are not believers use this this it's fabulous because what what it does is it, it it raises in a very succinct way the questions that any that any reflective and thoughtful person at some point in his or her life is going to ask okay like the God question. Okay? And, so, and you get to the bottom of each one of these little questions, and, and you can go one of two directions. If you answered yes to the God question, go to page 45. If you answered no to the God question, go to page 43. Okay? So if you go to page 43 in here, you get a, a little two-page thing on the implications of an atheistic worldview. It's just two pages. And it's not complicated. You don't have to be smart. But you're you're faced with the implications of adopting an atheistic worldview. Um, Islam, right? The Muhammad question. What do I do with Muhammad? Um, what do you believe about Muhammad? Was he a true prophet? If you answered yes to Muhammad, go to page six, answered yes to the question. Go to page sixty five. If you answered no, go to page thirty eight. I mean, it just it is a it's a phenomenally well laid out little thing. I, I'd really encourage you to get to get this. Um, um, and I just I mention this because. You know, as I'm reading through this thing this last week and kind of following these little trails that go various places, I just, I mean, it just cements in my head that while I don't know everything I'd like to know about how the creation occurred and, you know, all all these questions about Adam and Eve and, and, you know, there's a lot that we don't know. What we do know is that there is one answer to the question what is adequate to account for all of reality? And, and the answer to that question is the infinite personal triune God who is really there, the God of the Bible. That's what we get in Genesis 1 and 2. I don't get everything. I mean, to, to me, the most complicated question in the whole of Scripture is how does a man created in perfect righteousness and placed in a perfect environment commit sin? I get how an imperfect man living in an imperfect world can commit sin. I don't get how a perfect man created in perfect holiness and righteousness and placed in an environment that is pulsating with life and blessedness. I don't get, I, I don't get why, how that would happen. But I don't, get, I don't get a real answer to that question. What I get is the fact that he did. And the fact that he did is what explains why the rest of us are in the mess that we're in, right? So what I get in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is an explanation that's sufficient to account for everything that's there, and I get an explanation for why we're in the mess we're in. And that sets us on on a trajectory, trajectory for the rest of the story of the Bible, okay? So, and... You know, here in Hebrews 9, I just find it interesting that, um, that the writer of this letter just kind of says, I, there's a whole lot more I'd like to talk about, but I can't. Don't have time, don't have space, don't have whatever. Um, but what he does tell us, what he does tell us um, is really significant and really helpful. And that leads me to, to sort of the second thing. Um, and that is these references in the first uh, four or five verses uh, to the architecture of the temple, or the architecture of the tabernacle. Okay, now this is going to be a groupthink thing. Okay, and uh, this is a closed book test. Oh, yeah, you know I'm I'm kidding. I mean I'm I'm kind of kidding. And and. You, you know we 're pretty familiar with this stuff i think and and I got to cheat right i mean I got to prepare my little cheat sheet you because somebody's got to know the right answer here right so um, here 's what i 'd like to do i 'd like for us to uh to create and i'll i'll be the i 'll be the diagrammer i 'd like for us to create recreate uh, a, a picture of the architecture of the tabernacle. Okay? All right, so what do we start with? Okay, outer court. So I'm just going to make a big rectangle. Right? All right. Here's an interesting question Which direction is this thing facing? East. There we go. So this is east. Right? There's something symbolic about that. It's facing in the direction of the rising sun. You know? I think that's cool. I mean, rather than sunset, sunrise, I think that's kind of cool. Okay, so it faces east. I didn't do this. If anybody knows this, this is an extra credit question. You'll get... Big, big points for this one. What's around the tabernacle? The 12 tribes. That's not the extra credit uh, question. The extra credit credit question is, which tribes are where? Hmm, I don't know. But you got, huh? You got three on each side. There you go. Which three, right? I couldn't begin to tell you. You got three there, three there. Three here and three here, and I think these guys start, and these guys go next, and these guys go next, and then these guys come last, with Levitical priests trucking all the hardware in the midst of it all, whenever they move. okay OK, so all right, what, what's next? What else have we got in here? In, okay, outer court, we get to the outer court. Okay, all right, but we got, we got, I mean, we got the, I mean, we got the, we got the tent, right? We got the tent in here. Okay, there we go. So I'm just going to make some little broken stuff here. This is. Those are the entrance points into this, uh, into this thing. All right, what, what else? Anyth- anything, what else have we got in here? Wash basin, where's the wash basin? Bingo, right there. Right there, okay. Here's the basin. Oh, where's the lampstand? It's in there. It's in the holy place, which is where inside the, t- but on the east side of veil of the veil. Okay, so you got a veil here, as thick as a man's fist or a woman's fist, right? This thick veil. What's on this? What's on the veil? By the way, Anybody remember what's woven into the veil. Cherubim, yeah, which is like, okay. All right, so lampstand, lampstand, okay. The lampstand is here on the south side in the holy place, okay. What's this thing called? The most holy place, okay. So you got the lampstand there. What else you got? You got the ark. Where's the ark in the, holy place. in the in the holy place? Okay, it's right here, like this. And it's got these it's got these staffs through it, right? That stay there. Why are those things there? Yeah, they do. They stick out beyond the. Yeah, that's that's what these these extension things. This is the. Um, not in the picture I looked at, but maybe they do. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Okay, wait a second, wait a second. What's, what, what's the significance of these things? Why are those things there? To carry it. Yeah, it goes through the rings. The, the, the priests carry that, this thing with these things. What? What happens if you make a mistake? (laughs) Toast. Remember Uzzah? Remember Uzzah? Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? (laughs) Ah! I'm melting, I'm melting. Right, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There you go. Okay. All right, and then? Okay, right. Well, it's it's actually the the altar of A Ince- oh, which altar are you talking about? Well, maybe it's in the temple, There is. Yeah. There's the big altar. Yeah. This big bronze altar. And what do you do there? Sacrifice. That's where all that's where the that's where all the animals are sacrificed. Now, I I just you know, there's so many different things on, on, on the web that you can, you know, that you can kind of go to and, and, you know, you can just kind of Google symbolism in the tabernacle, right? And, and you just, sometimes I don't know if these people are just, you know, dreaming this stuff up or if they've got good reasons for saying the things they're saying, but there is obviously huge symbolism and significance to these, uh, to these pieces of furnishing in this tabernacle. I mean, what's the significance of, of the altar and sacrifices? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the, the arrangement of these things, I think, is pretty significant. That is the, you know, the, the priest has to take a bath in the first place, you know, before he starts to do his stuff. He comes in and he has to offer a sacrifice for himself for his own sins before he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people. So, so the, you know, the altar, it's the, it's the life for a life thing. A life sacrificed in order that a life be spared, the, the judgment that it deserves. And, I mean, you know the, the, I mean, even from Exodus 12, you know what the sacrifices were to be like. They were to be spotless, Right? The symbolism of spotlessness, which obviously points us to christ, so there's there's forgiveness attached to this um, and then and then the basin is is cleansing right I mean this is again i I don't want to press these things too far, but there's something to, to, that suggested to my mind that these these two furnishings in um, in the outer court sort of point to the, the, the two-fold problem that we have of sin. The, the, the legal problem of our guilt before God and the existential problem of, of our uncleanness before God. Right? So, you, you, you know, both of these things are here. And the priest actually, the priest has to go through this, before he gets to, you know, to this place, before he gets um, to the place where he does what he does. What about unintentional sin? Yeah, well, I, um, um, there's, a lot, there's a distinction. You read through, I can't get chapter and verse for you, but in Exodus and into Leviticus, there is distinction made between intentional and unintentional sin. Okay, well, so there's provision made for both. In this passage? Uh, that's a good question. That is a very good question. That's down in verse 15, isn't it? Or somewhere, yeah. I, that's a good question, Alice. Um, and I don't... Not in the sense that there's something we need to, you know, to do, right? I, I just find it's, it's a, to me it's a beautiful thing that God makes provision both for what we do in a willful, presumptive, self-conscious, intentional way and, and what we do that's, that's inadvertent. I mean, when Nadab, this kind of gets us to the, you know, the altar of incense, when Nadab and Abihu offered, an, you know, an inappropriate incense on it. They were doing something willful and intentional. And, you know, they got nailed. Um, David, in, I think it's in Psalm 19. I think it's in Psalm 19. When At the end of Psalm 19, he says, Search me and know me. Uh, try my anxious thoughts. See if there will be any hurtful way. And I think he makes ref- reference there to, to presumptuous sins. So, you know, he, Dave, David is making a distinction between things that, are, that we're conscious of, that we're aware of, that we know we're doing, distinguishing those things from, from things that are, in some sense, inadvertent. They're both sinful. Similar to so. what we called sins. No, I don't, I don't think, think so. Yeah, yeah, no, this is, you know, this is sort of knowing and, in some sense, not knowing um, okay, next thing. What's another, another piece of furniture here? The t- okay, the table of the showbread. Where is it? C- across from the... From, right, right. So it's right here. What's on it? How much bread? I love this. Twelve. Twelve. 12 loaves of bread on the table of presents. So there's the, and how many, how many uh, on the lampstand, how many little candle things are there? Uh Uh-uh. Mariel's whispering, seven, yes. Yeah, seven, okay, and 12. Okay, so what else do we have? Got a couple more things. One more thing. Yeah, the the altar of incense, okay, which is right outside the veil, okay. Now, significant. um, So you've you've got you have the tabernacle itself, right? What's what's the word that John uses in John one? When he says, when John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacle, tabernacled with us. What what was the distinguishing the thing that that God said would distinguish Israel from all the nations of the earth? I love this. My goodness, am I going to find this? Yeah, Deuteronomy chapter seven. Um. Oh, shoot, I'm not finding it. Darn it, I hate it when this happens. It's in, it's in Deuteronomy 5 or 6 or maybe it's into 7 where, where, um, where God says about himself and the law that he gives his people that it's this thing that will distinguish them among all the nations and the nations will look at them and they, and they will say, what nation is there like Israel? A nation whose God is so near to them, who gives them such just and righteous laws. I mean, that's the thing that distinguishes Israel from all of the nations of the earth, that their God tabernacles, dwells in their midst. And of course, you know, the, the incarnation is the fulfillment of this symbolic thing where, where, where the eternal God comes in human flesh and tabernacles among us, Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling in our midst, not removed from us, not distant, but near to us. That's the thing that distinguished Israel. That's the thing that distinguishes the people of God. Because what, 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 else, what else is there about this, this Ark of the Covenant? And the rod of Aaron, okay? It contains the tablets and the manna and the almond branch, the, the rod of Aaron, okay? Um, and what else about the, about the Ark of the Covenant? A couple of other features of the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim, okay? And how, what's the, what's the, um, how are the cherubim f- fabricated and fashioned? They face each other, their wings touch, and their faces are, are pointed down, right? And, and it's there, right, that the glory of God rests above the cherubim, right? And that's, that's all reminiscent of the Isaiah 6 thing, right? Remember Isaiah's vision of God where he sees, he sees the angels, in that case, the seraphim surrounding the throne. With, and they have three, three pairs of wings. With two, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And they ceaselessly cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. You know, you have angelic beings woven into, images of angelic beings woven into the veil to remind people that in this veil is that, is that God who is preeminently holy, right? And the veil itself, what does the veil tell us? Separation, right? I mean, separation here, separation here, separation here. There's only one, only one tribe of people that can come in here, right? The priests, in here. And there's only one person who gets to go in here one time a year right so separation holy separated from unholy okay all of this is you know it's in the text all going someplace right um, by the way the, it, it, this is an interesting interesting thing the two tablets of the covenant why are there two Well, that historically is how the two tablets have been depicted. Duty to God and duty to man. One through four, duty to God. Five through ten, duty to man. Actually, they're duplicate copies of the same thing. And the, the reason is this. When, when people would make covenants with each other, one would make promises, person A would make promises to person B, Person B would make promises to person A. They would each get a copy of that. It's kind of like it's kind of like the law, right? You, you know, people make promises to each other, you get a copy, you get a copy. But what, what these folks would do is if two kings made an agreement with each other, one's going to do this, the other's going to do this, they would each take a copy of that legal agreement and they would put it, put their respective copies in their respective temples so that their respective gods would be witnesses to the promises made so that if if king a violated the stipulations of the covenant the god of king b could inflict punishment upon him and vice versa if king b violates the stipulations of the covenant then the god of king a can visit judgments upon that king, right? Well, what do you have here? You have God making a covenant with his people. They each get a copy of the stipulations, and both copies go in the same place (laughs) because God is resting, God's presence dwells above the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests, in behalf of the people, in keeping with the stipulations of the covenant, come into that place to minister according to those stipulations. So they're, a, they're actually, thank you, Meredith Klein, they're actually, who taught me this in seminary way back in 1975, they're actually copies of the same thing. They're, they're duplicate copies. The two tablets of the covenant have the same thing on them. One is God's copy, and the other is the people's copy. But they stay together in the same place. Okay? cool little thing, I think. Um, okay, so Ark of the Covenant, angels um, um, facing each other, heads down, symbolizing their awe, their respect for the holiness of God. The altar of incense outside um, the veil, which, um, which is symbolic of what? Well, what? What is the incense symbolic of? You know, yeah, prayers, the, the, the intercessory work of the high priest, okay? The, 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 the high priestly intercession. That, and, you know, the aroma. I mean, I, I, this afternoon I was trying to find places in the Psalms or other places that, that make reference to the prayers of God's people ascending as a fragrant aroma, right? Couldn't find them, but I think it's there. Um, Okay, just a couple of other things. I just find this stuff wonderfully fascinating and significant. What's what what, what sort of the symbolism of the lampstand? Yeah, I mean, light. And, and you remember that the priest was to keep this thing constantly lighted. I mean, this, this thing it was to be a perpetual thing, Right? Perpetual light, so what did Jesus say when he came? you know just, i'm the light of the world right i 'm the light of the world. the bread of presence i 'm the bread of life and and don't you love that there are twelve loaves i mean that's that's symbolic it 's represented one for each of the twelve tribes we you know what what is being said in that well that there is a sufficiency for the whole of the people of God. There's enough bread for everybody, right? Jesus, I'm I'm the bread of life. Okay. Um, so that you know, there. Let's try to see if there's anything else in here. I wanted to um, wanted to mention re- regarding just the architecture of the thing. Um. Anything you want to ask about or comment on? Yeah. I think of see through that No, it was it it literally it was a couple of inches thick. I mean, it was yeah, you couldn't see through it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a thick curtain. Okay. Yes. Oil, yeah, yeah, there was oil supplied. The priests had to ensure that there was oil supplied to the lampstand to keep those, those lights. And, and, and again, this, the, symbol of, the symbolism of seven, you know, the, the menorah that has seven little, you know, that's the sabbatical pattern. It's, it's completion. You know, suf, sufficiency for the people of God, Sufficient light, that's eternal. That's complete. It's all the light you need, right? I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life, right? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so that's the that's the basic, um, the basic, you know, architecture of the of the tabernacle and then of the temple. Um, I mean, we haven't, you know, we haven't talked about the the high priestly garments, but, uh, you man, you should. I mean, you want to? That's just a fun read. It's uh, it's Exodus twenty eight, the description of the priestly garments. Um, you know, the 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 turban that has holy to the Lord, etched across the top. The 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 breastplate that has the twelve stones, the twelve. Precious stones that that are representative, uh, one for each of the twelve tribes, and and the idea that the high priest, as he goes, as he as he functions as a high priest and goes into the holy place, um, he he, I mean, I just, he carries not in his back pocket, <laughs> but close to his heart, he carries that representation of the people of God. Into the presence of God, right? I mean, so what? You know, what is all of this stuff doing? And then, and then, of course, um, there's one other little little piece. Almost forgot this. What's the top of the Ark of the Covenant called? The mercy seat, right? The mercy seat. The um, the Hebrew word. You'll recognize this. Maybe the Hebrew word is kaporet. 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 Does that sound like kippur? Like it's derived from Yom Kippur. So it's the atonement cover. Right? And the high priest, what would the high priest do when he came, when he came into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place once a year? What did he bring with him? He, he, he brought the blood of... Of the goat, of the goat who was slain. Right, remember on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, there were two goats. The first goat was slain, and the blood of that goat was taken into the holy place and was sprinkled on the mercy seat, the atonement cover, atoning for the sins of the people. And then, what did he do with the other goat, the scapegoat? When Yeah, he placed his hands on the head of it. I know I've mentioned this, and maybe you remember it. If you read through the first six or seven or eight chapters of Leviticus, over and over again, you'll you'll see hands emphasized, placed on a sacrifice without explanation. But when you get to Leviticus 16... All of, that, all of that putting your hands on stuff through those first seven or eight chapters now comes into focus when the high priest places his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confesses the sins of the people. And the sins of the people are transferred through the high priest to the scapegoat. And then where does the scapegoat go? I mean, this is so dramatic. He goes out into the wilderness and what does he take with him? The sins of the people, right? Gone. <laughs> and what I mean, what happens to the poor little scapegoat out in the wilderness? There are jackals out there. There are nasty creatures looking for a meal. The scapegoat dies. I mean, have I, have I mentioned? Um, you know that that um, gosh, the, the film. Um, Jurassic Park you remember where they, t- they put the little goat in the cage and the, t- the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex like Powr. that's it poor little goat is gone but when the goat goes the sins go so there's, there's provision made right life given for lives for forgiveness and, and the removal of the guilt and the corruption of sin it's all you know it's all there um, very dramatically represent represented okay so um so we're we're kind of i think we're doing through these first five verses what what the writer of the letter didn't do, <laughs> right he didn't take time to talk about all of this stuff that that's I think that's what we're talking about here, but then. Um, so then, so that that's the architecture. Some of the symbolism, some of what is going on uh, in the tabernacle. Um, but then verses um, verses eight and nine. Um, by this, all of this symbolism through the first seven verses, actually. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, what is he saying there? I think what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is using this as a teaching aid, right? Teaching us. But as long as these things are still standing, as long as this arrangement is still in existence, look at what he says in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So so this is all given to us to teach us, but it can't accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And and then verse 10 but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, this, this is a fascinating thing. I don't know if anybody read this. I didn't know this until I read this. This word that's translated Reformation appears one time in the Scriptures, here. And what it means, literally... Um, is to make something straight. It's a, it's a compound word, it's a little preposition uh, and from a verb that means to make something perfectly straight. It's the only time it appears in the New Testament, so I had, I had to do a little, little snooping around in classical literature, contemporary, but extra biblical um, contemporary literature. It's used, um, it's used to describe the setting of a broken limb. Okay? The setting of a broken limb. Something that's broken that needs to be literally straightened and fixed. It's used, it's used of correction. Parents in relationship to children. Chastisement. Correction. Discipline. To make straight... What's crooked? What needs to be um, straightened out? It's um, it's used to describe correction when you correct someone. Not you know a little different from discipline. Two plus two does not equal five, right? So somebody says two plus two. It needs to be corrected. Okay. So what? So the Holy Spirit is using all of this to teach us, right? Setting us up, right? But at the same time, the writer is saying, this can, it can teach us, but it can't fix what's broken. Right? It can't fix what's broken. It can't straighten what is crooked. It can't set the limb. Verse 9, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But what it does do, obviously, is set us up for the coming of Christ. Right? And th- th- this... Um, then verses eleven and twelve, um, having 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 told us that this is, this instructs us, it teaches us, but it can't fix what's broken. Verse eleven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, now you know. Back up in verse nine, eight and nine, he makes reference to this first section that is still standing that includes the stuff that's out here in the outer court, the stuff that's included here in the holy place, this, this outer stuff is still standing. Um, it's symbolic for the present age. right? The, the, these are the things that pertain to the present age, which suggests to me that the letter to the Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. This stuff is still there. So it's still operational. But on the other hand, he says in verse 11, he makes reference to the fact that the good things have come. Okay? And when, so the good things that have come, Christ, having appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So what's the writer saying? He's saying Christ having come has brought fulfillment to everything that is symbolized here. And if you remember right from Matthew 26, what happened at the moment that Jesus expired and died. This this veil was torn. I mean, you've heard sermons about this, right? You've heard people talk about this. In what direction was the veil torn? From top to bottom. The text is very explicit. It was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top. What's all that about? Don't you think it's suggestive of the fact that that this is heaven's doing? (laughs) This is God's doing, not man's doing. You know, we rip stuff from bottom to that I mean, that's indicative of us trying to go up. But the, but the veil is rent from top to bottom. So what does all of that mean? Well, it means that Christ comes as the perfect sacrifice, bringing forgiveness, bringing cleansing. He comes as the light of the world. He comes as the bread of life. He comes as the perfect high priest who offers up perfect prayers for for his people. And he tears the veil, enters into the holy place, and makes all the rest of this stuff obsolete. It's all obsolete. It's It's done. It's toast. Finished for having fulfilled its purpose, okay. Um, and um, and then just you know one last question: the greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. You know what's the more perfect tent? the The more perfect, the more perfect tent, or the more perfect. What's the key thing about the tent? It's where the presence of God is, right? It's where God in all of his glory dwells. Christ enters into the more perfect tent. He enters into the very presence of God in the perfect sanctuary, right? Of which, chapter 9, verse 24, of which these things are copies, right? Verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Right? So all of this stuff becomes obsolete. Christ passes not through a literal physical um, holy place and most holy place, but he enters into the very presence of God, right? And gives access, gives access to those who follow Him there right? And this, this stuff, the idea that this all gets fulfilled in Christ, becomes obsolete, Christ enters into the more perfect tent. This then, to me, makes sense of what um, the, the writer says in, uh, in chapter 12, verse 18, and follow. All right, remember, he's, he's trying to encourage these readers that the better thing has come, The more perfect thing is... Don't go back to the old thing. It's obsolete. Right? I mean, man, I tell you, there's so many... A lot of sermons in that. Right? Don't go back to your dead traditions. Don't go back to things that don't... You you know, the greater thing has come. The fuller thing has come. Right? What is the fuller thing? It is Christ who has entered into the very presence of God. Verse 22. But you have come. I love this. You have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Right? This, chapter 9, makes sense then of chapter 12. Right? And, and uh, you know, these guys will say it. Glenn will say it. Zach will say it. Clayton will say it. They'll say it in their prayers. They'll say it in opening comments. They'll say, there's more going on here than meets the eye. We have come into the presence of the living God. We are surrounded by innumerable angels. We are adding our voices to the voices of the spirits of just men made perfect, right? All because Christ has come in fulfillment of all of this, making all the rest of this obsolete, giving us now through his work, immediate access to the Father.